Welcome to Terror Talk. Before we start the show today, I wanted to give you a heads up about our Patreon community. For as little as $5 a month, you can become a patron and join our Discord community, where we watch film together and chat daily. You also have early access to our episodes and a mini-cast that we do exclusively for Patreon members. Also, check out our new website at terrortalkpodcast.com. Follow along as we build it together. Most of all, thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Terror Talk with Shannon and Kathy. Hello. Hello. Today on the show, Kathy is going to take us through the first part of a two-part series she's going to do on David Parker Ray, who was the toy box killer. So I'm just going to hand it over to you, lady. I feel like I need like that that uh, canned applause right there in that moment. <laughs> and Kathy Barrett, everybody. He's going to talk about David Parker Ray, who's the oh. sickest man in the lot. Well, he's not alive anymore. Yeah, you wanted to give a disclaimer, <laughs> yeah, as I, I remember. I know a lot of people listen to this show because they like the true crime and they don't mind the graphic details. But, you know, FYI, this guy is pretty fucking sick. <laughs> okay. And so I think in order to tell the story um, and to really get a an essence of who he was, we cannot really talk about him without talking about the depth of his um, sadism and just the graphic details of what he did to his victim. So I just want to put a warning out there for it's going to be more so in part two, although I'll start to talk about it a little bit today in part one. Um, that the, there might be things that are either triggering to people if they've been sexually assaulted or raped um, held against their will. He it's pretty graphic. So I would just like to put that out there. If you feel like that might be triggering for you, you may not want to listen to this episode. So we've talked about, um, I'm, out. I'm out. Bye Shannon. <laughs> just kidding. I'm so looking used to, forward to it. So used I'm to one doing of this alone. <laughs> I'm one of those people. Yeah. I'm one of those people in the audience is like, give it to me. Yeah. Tell me all about it. I know. Right. When it's from a distance and it isn't personal, it's That's really, right. it's really intriguing. And you, you, you know, we'll talk a little bit about maybe how this individual got to where he did. And then again, you know, we always preface that an explanation is not an excuse, but it's part of the, what we do on this show is we talk about it from a psychological, psychological perspective, which means we're going to dissect, you know, evident, uh, we're going to talk about, um, parts of his childhood and his traumas and, um, things that happened at certain parts of his life that I think, you know, just add layers to yeah. how somebody develops. And we know that many of these, these people start with a lot of trauma. Well, I think as a child or as a young person somewhere in teenage land, and maybe that resonates with our audience is that I, I became fascinated with the people puzzle. Yeah. And so it, when you're that age and you don't know about much, uh, you start to get into a place where the people puzzle is certainly interesting in these variants, you know, these people that are on one end of the spectrum. And so the people puzzle isn't very intriguing because they're, well, you feel as if they're very different from you. Yeah. And so it's like, it's very intriguing. Mm -hmm. And so I, I do think that's one of the reason why like true crime stuff is I th so I think popular. so. Yeah, for sure. And also just, you know, when you're so f removed from it, you're like, how does someone just live in that reptilian brain and they're able to just do these things without remorse and, and not only without remorse that they're, they're aroused by it. Um, and so I think anybody who's, you know, neurotypical is looking at that going, Wow. And I mean, they're also a human being 
and they're able to do that. So I don't know. It's just, you know, mm-hmm. it's intriguing. But absolutely. All I can say is if Manhunter, the the series continues, Mindhunter, excuse me, if Mindhunter continues, they need to bring this dude in because I think they'd be able to to do this well. So let's talk about who is this guy. Okay. Um, I'm going to start with a quote that he would, uh, this is one of the cl- quotes that he would say after he had captured his his victims, one of the quotes that he, what he would do is he would pre-record what he would say to his victims and he would play it as a way of tormenting and torturing and giving them a foreshadow of, of what to expect. So this is, this is just a quote before I get into who he is. He would say, be smart and be a survivor. Don't ever scream. Don't talk without permission. Be very quiet, be docile and obedient. And by all means show proper respect have a nice day. So he would end up, he would always end his quotes with either like, have a nice day, or this is for adults only. It was like really bizarre. (laughs) He would like throw in just like something, by the way, if this is not appropriate for you, I'm so sorry. You know, it's just really weird. So strangely, he's an odd duck. He's an odd duck. Yeah. Yeah. Go, go figure. So he was born, David Parker Ray, uh, was born on November 6th, 1939, and he passed on May 28th, 2002, and we'll talk about uh, how he passed in the second episode. Also known as the Toy Box Killer, he was an American kidnapper, torturer, rapist, and suspected serial killer. So the reason why we say suspected is because most of his, um, what he was accused of and sentenced for really had to do more with his kidnapping and torturing and raping. Um, oftentimes he would actually drug them so they would forget what happened and then he would let them go. He would dump them off somewhere. So he didn't always kill them. Um, and there's, there's, there are some, I believe some bodies that were never found. So there's suspicion that, um, he did kill some of them, but we don't. We also don't know if that was just because the torture became so, you know, right. intense that they they died. Their body they didn't survive, so no bodies were found. Um, he was accused by his accomplices of killing several women and suspected by the police to have murdered as many six as many as sixty women from Arizona and New Mexico. Mexico. Wow. I can't talk today. (laughs) Slow down. Right. (laughs) While living in elephant butte, which looks like elephant, butt, if you look at it, (laughs) fantastic living in elephant butte, approximately seven miles North of truth or consequences, New Mexico, who named these cities? Yeah. There's some great ones in New Mexico, honestly. So there's a lot of, uh, speculation around, you know, did he actually kill women or did he not? But, you know, many people have reported that he has either made, comments that he has or his accomplices have spoken up and said, yeah, we, we saw him do that, but that is not really what he was notoriously, uh, what he was notorious for. Gotcha. Additionally to the, the kidnapping and torturing, he also, uh, engaged in a lot of bestiality and just an obsession with linking, you know, whether it was animalistic behavior or animals themselves into the torture and Mm. humiliation. Mm. So in 1999, when local law enforcement found Cynthia Vigil uh, Jeremio, I think is how you pronounce it. Mm. She was naked except for a dog collar and chain. Ray reportedly treated his victims like dogs, forcing them to eat on the floor while bound with a leash. In Jeremio's account of her captivity, she relayed how Ray bathed her like a dog and forced her to perform sexual acts for him and his accomplices. 
And she also recounted how her, uh, how uh, Ray also inserted gravy into her vagina so that his dog would actually remove the contents against her will. So it was just constant humiliation, torment, um, you know, imagine not that I'm asking you to get into a state of mindfulness around this, but just imagining being not only in such a humiliating state being, uh, there were multiple people that could come in and out of these rooms, including like the, and then he would, I'll talk about this in a bit, but he would also put a mirror at the top so they could see themselves getting tortured or whatever was going on sure. with them. So I'm, just, I'm just struck by he's equating them with dogs. Yes. Right. As if they're the same. That's right. One dog with another dog having, you know, having sex, like yeah. having sexual acts with a dog. Yep. As if they are dogs. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so he, um, makes which makes sense, right? Put people totally. lower than you are. Yeah. It, it, it you know, depersonalizes and humanizes whatever you want to say or dehumanizes. Uh, he definitely had animosity towards women, which we'll talk about. But what he ended up doing is he, he soundproof a truck trailer, which he called his toy box and he equipped it with items used for sexual torture. So he would kidnap anywhere between five and six girls a year. So he would probably keep them captive for you know six or eight weeks which is a long time very long time. Uh, that's if he was back to back in his mm -hmm. you know i don't really know his trajectory as far as like did he keep them for a few weeks and then you know didn't have anybody for a couple for a month but to me he seemed pretty insatiable okay so, so there wasn't a lot of pausing i don't think there was a lot of pausing yeah and to, to think about the different um what he would do is before they actually were physically tortured, he would spend just like three or four days just raping them. Um, not to minimize that, but I'm saying this is before they even went into the toy box. There was, there was an about. arc to what he created yes. as far as whatever the narrative he was creating mm -hmm. in his, in his experience for someone's torture. Yes. There was a, there was a pattern. That's of the right. Narrative. Right. Gotcha. That's right. And so it would start with, you know, he would kidnap them and then maybe he would just, you know, I don't know, handcuff them to his bed or whatever and then rape them for days blindfolded or whatever. Then he would move them into the toy box and play uh, these gruesome tapes that I'll talk about in the next episode. So he soundproofed a truck trailer, which he called his toy box and equipped it with items used for sexual torture. He'd kidnap between five or six girls a year, like I was telling you. Um, yeah, so he would keep them around three to four months. So if you do the math, he probably had more than one at a time at yeah, some points, right? Yeah, they were definitely overlapping mm -hmm. if that was the, yeah. That's right. So so it could be that those, you know, five or six days he has the one woman in the house and the other one in the, in the toy box. Cause it wasn't, it was just a trailer. I don't know how many he Man, could have in there. He's once. like, he's juggling. He's juggling, he's but he has accomplices. Yes. Yeah. Ugh. So he would, uh, sexually abuse his victims. Sometimes he would involve his dog. Sometimes he would involve his wife who participated willingly okay. in her, in the crimes. Um, he would often torture them with surgical instruments then he would either kill his victims um, or drug them, which was more, I think that was more common is he would actually use a combination of barbiturates in an attempt to wipe their memories. And so therefore he could just dump them by the side of the road and they would come out of it and go, uh, what ha well, how did I get here? They would have very little recollection. And that's why he, um, one of the reasons he wasn't caught for so long was because of that. And I'm about to get into his childhood. He also had a clean, as far as we know, there's some speculation around this. He had a pretty clean criminal record, which is not common no. for someone who's antisocial or right. psychopathological, 
But as we find out some of his, the people in his life start to speak up about that and go, he just wasn't caught, but there was some weird stuff going on when he was a child that, you know, led him to this, but he part luck, part smarts, part, um, highly manipulative and skilled at it from a young age, you know, could have been all those things. And I think if we look at it from, this is someone who also engaged in a lot of fantasy as a child and didn't, and I think he only played it out once if this is a true story. Mm -hmm. So this is someone when we, when I used to work with violent, sexually violent predators, we would talk about how fantasy was a rehearsal for actual behavior. Mm -hmm. So it could just be that when he started to develop these fantasies and they started to intensify that they were just rehearsals and he's opportunistic. It wasn't until there was a, an opportunity and he had the right things in place. Could he then carry out this fantasy and make it real? Mm-hmm. So we have to look at that. So, um, he was convicted of kidnapping and torturing in 2001. He received a lengthy sentence, which I'll get into, but he was actually never convicted of murder. So, um, and then he died of a heart attack about one year after his convictions. And we'll get into more, more depth, uh, in the second episode, but I just wanted to give you sort of a, a full picture of from the time he started his torture to his death. Yeah. Thank you. So if we look at his childhood, like we do with all of these guys, they tend to have some really, you know, uh, traumatic or, um, neglectful pass. He was born in New Mexico in 1939 to Cecil and Nettie Ray, excuse me. Little is known about his childhood outside of the fact that he was mainly raised by his grandfather, but he did regularly see his father. His father would come over um, and his father was very abusive. He would beat him. And there is some documentation that um, also states that his father sexually molested him. Mm. So, Okay, if that's true, that falls into place. That that lines up. That makes sense. Awful. So due to his poor financial condition, the family lived with his mother's parents on a small ranch where he grew up with his sister, Peggy. And let me just clarify there. When I say it makes sense, that doesn't mean that everybody who's sexually molested becomes a predator. But we do know that without proper intervention and resources and um, you know, getting the help that he might have needed and having certain protective factors, then that just, you know, manifested into uh ray acting out it's one it's one of a of a palette right right so it's a red flag and if there's four or five six seven more red flags Mm -hmm. right so in isolation it doesn't mean anything but in conjunction with all of these other things then Mm -hmm. it's certainly a risk factor so just some some statistics about him so he is the oldest of two kids he has one younger sibling named peggy he was raised by his grandfather. Um, he His parents were actually married, but the father did not live there. The family event, um, some family events that happened, his grandmother died. David and his sister were split up. Um, so I, I believe that they were close, but they were split up at some point. He had problems in school. He was teased in school. He would actually get teased for being unusually shy with girls. So one of his uh, earliest memories, and I think part of his 
narrative and and this development of animosity towards women is right out the gate because he was actually a very shy and what they would even describe as an innocent child almost naive um, that he was very teased for not being aggressive enough or assertive enough with girls and the girls would also tease him not just the boys so you know what that does to a kid's psyche doesn't make them a psychopath but it's certainly it's it's going to start to break it's somebody incredibly down common too it is in a lot of the men in particular that mm-hmm. we've looked at incredibly common that they were they they felt an impotency that's right you know an impotent feeling with the gender that they want to have sex with basically and an entitlement to that yeah right so we think about um you know there we don't really see that in reverse like we i mean girls are bullied and put down and shamed by boys and body shamed and all that and we don't really see that as much because society is basically said you know you i'm i'm allowed to have you i'm supposed to have you and you're not adhering to that and i'm pissed off well and i would cup i would i would probably more go also towards the fact that he was uh sexually molested true and that someone violated him and thought his body was not his own yep and his body was their property and not and had no border yep and so he was socialized to believe that other people's bodies have no border either there's no line right right and so we're going to take that piece and we're going to link it with something else so when we talk about um you know tra- th- that early trauma mixed with other environmental factors this is this is how this proverbial beast was created here so he so he was teased we we're talking about that he's he was said to be fairly good looking um as a teenager he uh, he did complete high school. He received a high school diploma, but he was not a very good student. He uh, received really poor grades, low Ds. And I would imagine, again, you know, you're growing up in an abusive and neglectful home with corporal punishments. I, I don't really think studies are at the top of your agenda. He was just trying to avoid, um, you know, like you were saying, Janet, Janet. Janin? <laughs> Janin? Shannon. He was trying to avoid annihilation. I mean, school i don't think was really on his radar no so he was bullied um these insecurities drove him to start to drink to use drugs he did serve in the military he was in the army um his work was he was an unemployed mechanic so i don't know if we call that work if he was unemployed but he did start to learn how to fix things at a young age when he was given a motor scooter for his birthday Mm -hmm. and he found a lot of purpose out of that just like wow i there's something that people might need me for that i can be useful for right um he identified as heterosexual he was uh divorced four times he has two daughters um and he lived with one of them which ends up being an accomplice which we'll talk about uh, another a number of accomplices cindy hendy who was his girlfriend jesse ray who's his daughter um and then dennis yancey who was uh, i believe a friend or a co-worker that ends up becoming um an accomplice and they actually tortured and murdered Yancey's girlfriend, Marie Parker. So he had a lot of people doing his dirty work, although he enjoyed partaking in it in himself. Uh, A number of victims that they know of for sure is 14, but possibly up to 60. So his victim type was prostitutes, young females. 
easy access, right? People Very. that would go missing and either would be hard to find, defenseless or nameless. Um, he, he would start, at, so we think that his earliest murder was actually in his teens, but his, the, when, when the series of murders started, it wasn't until the 1950s. So during his childhood, Ray and his younger sister Peggy lived with their disciplinarian grandfather. So he was, he would also have these interruptions. I, I talked about this earlier briefly, but he would have these sporadic interruptions where the father would visit and he was incredibly violent. He would abuse alcohol. Um, but then he started to supply David with magazines depicting sadomasochistic pornography. So here's a kid that was just, essentially this object in the family um, used for every, basically a container for the grandfather and the father's rage and animosity, and even the mother's to a certain extent. He did not receive any nurturance at all. Um, and then to top that all off, the grandfather was a devout fundamentalist Christian who used corporal punishment. So this was not someone who just went to his room. This is someone who literally got the shit beat out of him, mm. probably locked up, probably forced to piss on himself, all mm -hmm. that stuff that we read about. So, you know, and then, then he goes to school and he's devalued, he's tormented, he's humiliated. So to Shannon's point earlier, it's like, this is uh, something that uh, when he wanted his revenge, something that had been done to him, he felt justified in being able to give back. Mm -hmm. um, he was actually described as an innocent and timid child uh, and remained pretty docile before what they said, you know, before he flipped. Right. Okay. So at the age of 12, he began making bombs. So when we say, oh yeah, he was a, you know, there was not a huge criminal history and whatever, blah, blah, blah. It's pretty odd for a child to just start making bombs. It's a, uh, yeah, it's an outlier quality for sure. Yeah. Um, and then at the age of 13, that's when he received the motor scooter for his birthday and started to gain confidence as a good mechanic. Mm. But what ends up happening is in conjunction with his sexual development, his father starts to purchase these true detective magazines. And so if you go back and, listen to the the series we did on Ted Bundy. This was also a precursor for Bundy. He would read these true detective magazines, which I'm going to tell you what these are in a moment. And so this started to spark some ideas and fantasies and rehearsals. Mm. Um, and I think also normalize, which is what I was saying earlier about uh, environmentally at that time or socially at that time, that women were, very much objectified in, in sometimes even in violent ways as an object of somebody's affection. If, if a man wanted that, then he could do whatever he wanted to get that. And so these magazines, um, I think facilitated that and added to the trauma that was already there. So true Det detective magazine was published from 1924 all the way to 1995 I didn't realize that it had gone on for that long. Me and so, neither. That's, yeah. Wow. So the magazine had uh, misogynistic themes and suggestibility of women asking to be beaten, murdered, and raped. So essentially there were forms of sadomasochistic forms of pornography embedded in a detective story. Gotcha. So I was looking up to see if you could still find some true detective uh, stuff like product 
product descriptions. And right. this is somebody, I'm looking at a cover of one right now. This is, um, I don't know what year it is. It looks really old, 60s or 70s. And the cover says, the beauty queen who fell out of the sky, torture killing of a college freshman. Florida detective cracks a five-year-old slaying riddle. So, and then on the cover, you know, like her breasts are hanging out. She's running from this guy who's holding up a gun. And the comment says, great vintage true crime magazines filled with over-the-top stories, posed photos, and grisly scenes. Good girl art. Torture slaying of a college freshman. The beauty queen who fell out of the sky. Day of wine and violent death. Uh, probers began to doubt that the motive for the slaying was entirely robbery. It just didn't make sense that the killer would leave $18 in his victim's wallet. Cover and back page has very minor creases. Very m- So this cult following around basically exploiting these very sadomasochistic stories. And clearly there's coupled with, you know, all the sexual arousal and all of that. So this is what he was reading at like 12, 13. I mean, uh, yeah. Okay. Influ- an influential age. <laughs> an influential age. Right. Um, let me find where it was. Well, and I'm struck by the fact that it's very common, at least in the research that we've done over the last few years, it's very common to have a young boy who is shy, victimized, taken advantage of, doesn't have, isn't given the skills, and then is given kind of an overarching power around some minor skills, some basic things, and then exposed to more trauma, sexual content, violence, and then that combination of so desperately wanting revenge and power because you've been victimized Mm -hmm. and traumatized and then being given sex and violence as the way, right? given that message as the way to get that. And then you couple those things and you've got, you know, a victim victimizer, right? Oh my like God, you've got it's that. like a recipe and for And we just disaster. see that. We've seen that over and over and over yeah. again in very different stories and different mm-hmm. qualities and different scenes, basically, of the childhood. But that is so common. Yeah. That, that mixture right there. Yep. So common. Yep. And so... To add to what Shannon's saying, if if you look at um, what we know about some of the neurodevelopment, neurodevelopmental components, when you mix, um, you know, sadistic pornography and those images early on during sexual development, um, what we know is that this can this can actually affect what we call the neuroplasticity of the brain. So neuroplasticity in a sense is, is the way that our, our brain sort of adopts things and holds onto things and, and um, evolves, right? It, it, like it, it has a bit, it has a lot to do with how we see the world, how we react to the world. Um, there's multiple components to just oversimplify it, but it does get to a point in our life where neuroplasticity stops happening. Okay, it slows down tremendously. It really peaks in our youth. So one of the components of neuroplasticity is that as we age, our brains become less plastic. So we, uh, we're not taking in as much, we're not absorbing as much, and we can resist change at a higher degree than when we were younger. Mm-hmm. But when we're younger, think of neuroplasticity like a sponge. 
So this is especially true for for children. So it's at it, it's at its highest during our childhood and adolescent phases, and then decreases continually for the remainder of our lives. So it doesn't mean that we can't can't change our brains or ways of thinking. It just means that it gets much harder. That's why I think sometimes we'll hear like, "Can't teach an old dog new tricks," right? <laughs> or oh, adults are so hard in therapy because they're so set in their ways. It really has nothing to do with that, and so much as it does with the neuroplasticity and just experience. So it were it's easier for the brain to sort of mold and restructure when we're younger. So children's brains are so susceptible. That's why there's so much out there about like video games and music and material that in itself doesn't cause someone to be violent, but we're much more susceptible to becoming that way. If we have other environmental factors mm -hmm. that increase the risk. So just like Shannon was saying about all of the objectification and wanting that revenge now mixed in with normalizing this sexually violent material. Absolutely. Okay. Um, so he begins to have these sadomasochistic fantasies at the age of 13. While he reads these magazines, he was in psychosexual development. He would fantasize about using broken bottles on women. Ray's sister Peggy had reported to the FBI that she found pornographic photographs and drawings depicting sadomasochistic acts. So this is the fantasy. This is the rehearsal that I'm talking about. Years later, his fiancee, Cindy Hendy, who was one of his accomplices, actually told the FBI that Ray had admitted with extreme joy that he had committed his first murder as a young teenager, and he had tied a girl to a tree and tortured her to death. Okay. So that's where we think he, he actually, you know, that was his first, first thing. And then it, it, years went by until it became a pattern for him. Uh, in high school, he starts to abuse alcohol, which is, can be very common but especially with kids who are troubled. I think also, I don't know if this is the case for him, but in other stories that we've, uh, in other cases that we've talked about, it's often because when we actually hear from the killer later, it's, it is because they're fighting the impulses that they know are wrong. Yeah. And so they're, I know this happened with several of the other people we've talked about where they're, they use substances to dull the, rage the impulse the mm -hmm. all that because uh, and Dahmer I think did that and I'm not yeah. saying it's selfless necessarily no, I'm no. saying like they don't want to get caught yeah and they have the impulse to do it every day right and they're organized enough in their thinking yeah they're to, sane to say I'm going to use these unhealthy coping skills which is what drugs and alcohol are mm -hmm to numb dull and not act on these impulses because either I know they're wrong. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they don't. I would argue a lot of times they do know they're wrong mm -hmm. and they're not insane. Mm -hmm. uh, as I think you would argue that yeah. for most of the people we talk about. I think that's one of the biggest reasons why Dahmer didn't get the insanity plea because he would, he would use dr uh, alcohol to numb his nerves. He, yeah. So he could, he was saying he knew yeah. that, he wasn't insane. He no. was mindfully going into yeah. this and saying, I need to drink because it slows me down. Yep. Mm. Yep. All right. So he, later on, post high school, he would start to develop a fetish for leather, finding multiple leather bondage straps and electronic generator on his victims while they were held at gunpoint. So again, nothing wrong mm -mm. with a fetish for leather. But when we're combining that with using electronic generators and pointing a gun at somebody's head... Now we have a little bit of a problem. Yeah, it's that consensual question yep. I bring up a lot. <laughs> That's right. Not consensual. That's right. So he ends up going on to work as an auto mechanic. He worked in the army and he was actually, um, he received honorable discharge from the, uh, from the army. 
I don't know. I don't have all the details around that, but I'm actually surprised it wasn't dishonorable discharge. Yeah, you'd be surprised. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, moving more into his young adulthood, at the age of 26, David meets an 18-year-old girl named Glenda Berlin. I think that's how you pronounce it or Berlin. I don't know. They married, had a daughter that they named Glenda Jean Ray, his oldest daughter of, I believe two. He would soon abandon his family and then meets another young girl named Sally, who he hitchhikes to, to Harris Canyon with. Ray was married and divorced four times. He had children, including his daughter, Jesse Ray, who was an accomplice in some of his abductions. He, had only one child from an early marriage. Um, that's Jesse. And in, when she was 32 in 1999, law enforcement arrested her and her father. So reportedly she tried to warn the FBI about what he was up to back in 1986. So what is, do the math on that 86, right? So we're looking at 13 years later, 13 years prior to his to uh, his arrest, she had tried to go to the FBI, go to law enforcement and say, hey, something's up with my dad. He's a sicko. And they did not believe they had enough. So she had alleged that David Parker Ray was abducting and torturing women and selling them to buyers in Mexico. But the allegations were so nonspecific that the FBI couldn't act against him. So again, this sort of reminds me of Bundy in the sense that like he keeps getting away with this stupid shit as careless as he is, just like when Bundy was driving his car and he gets pulled over because he doesn't have like, what is it? His, his registration or his taillights out as he has like bodies in the back. Right. And right. he doesn't get, this is sort of like that. It's like someone was trying to, his own daughter was trying to turn him in 13 years before. And they're like, yeah, well that's just not, that's not specific enough. Oh, good Lord. Yeah. So it wasn't until 1999. Then she gets arrested with him because somewhere between 1986 and 1999, she probably becomes older, old enough to be conditioned and, and, you know, groomed to be his accomplice. And she would not have been involved at all if they would have just listened to her in 1986. Damn it. Idiots. <laughs> <sighs> but that's so human. Yes. We, we want to deny that this stuff is real. Right. And, just, and we don't want to take one person's account and especially a family account. Right. We just, we just, we don't buy it. If it was a TV show and that happened every, you know. Yeah. You go, and, and he, he huh. was, he was a, a white dude who was very respected as a father and a husband. You know, he it just didn't fit a profile. It didn't no. just like Bundy again. Like when his girlfriend tried to call in and say, Hey, he looks like the warning the, the he looks like the, the photo and that's the car. And they're like, nah. This is why these, I mean, I'm, I'm convinced that one of the reasons why these particular people that we talk about on the show become so, so famous right. and quote unquote successful in their profession, which is killing and torturing is because of these kinds of factors. It's not only that they're organized and deceptive and highly manipulative and quote unquote, like I said, successful with what they do. It's because they fit a certain profile that doesn't, that we don't want to believe that's right that they're capable of these things yep. it's but it's just one of the factors not the only factor why right. they get away with it but yep 
100%. Yeah. But yeah, he was, so yeah, you're right. He doesn't fit the profile. He's re- well-respected as a father and a husband. He was a teacher at the Spartan School of Aeronautics in Oklahoma. Plus the 50s or 60s, yes. right? Yes. Well, okay. yeah. I mean, so. I mean, at this point, we're probably in, in like the 80s. Okay. Okay. But still very new in the profiling yes, biz. Yeah. Very much. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But his, his uh, you know. Um, the scope. The scope, yeah, yeah, starts back in the 50s and 60s. Yeah, yeah. So then then you have, uh, you know, he begins meeting women out at bars as well as picking up prostitutes. Mm-hmm. He'd perform sadomasochistic acts. He would, um, later he would admit that by his mid-30s, he was completely consumed by these sadomasochistic murder fantasies. So just to revisit sadomasochism and what it is, it's... it's um, Basically, sexual gratification from the infliction of physical pain or humiliation, either on another person or on oneself. So at this point, it doesn't state how much of this is consensual, but I think at this point, he's still, he's not yet at the place where he's holding people against their will, but his, 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 ten, his uh, fantasies and his urges are starting to grow. I'm sure there's some in there. If he started in the 50s and 60s, there's probably some in there that were held against their will or drugged. You bet. But I would imagine it's a combination at this point. Yeah. So, like we've talked about, subjects of his frustration, the women who had ignored him, now become his focus of torment. He wanted to pay back, and he retaliated by victimizing women um, You know that would essentially go unnoticed. Mm-hmm. So he and his wife leased this land in Elephant Butte and Stone Lake, New Mexico. So these were two places he would kidnap girls and perform sadomasochistic torture. Um, he would sell them t- to slavery in Mexico, and which is why you know a lot of them would just disappear. Bodies were never found. These were people who were you know pr- probably went heavily unnoticed, came from troubled homes, or whatever. He would move around Albuquerque and he met a man by the name of Billy Ray Bowers who would become one of Ray's accomplices as well. So he had several accomplices. Right. So this would be the time that he started to build his infamous toy box. Um, He purchased a trailer where he began to make his own bondage equipment. The torture chamber was homemade. It was valued at $100,000. And it, it was within this torture chamber, which I'll get into more detail in the next episode, that he inflicted and apparently murdered his victim. So what was in this toy box? The trailer consisted of a gynecological table with a mirror mounted to the ceiling. So the women could would have to, unless they closed their eyes and... If they're being tortured, I would imagine a lot of times it was part, probably hard for them to keep their eyes closed. I don't know. Yeah. I, um, does, you, I, I would imagine so. I don't want to imagine. Yeah. But, but I would imagine Our nervous so. system does weird stuff, right? <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So it would force them to look at themselves while they're getting tortured. There were whips. There were chains. There were straps. There were leg spreaders. So the women would lay down on the table. And if, if you dare to go online and look at some of the FBI photos, you can actually see how the women's legs were strapped down not not like when you lay on a gyn table and they're they're kind of spread but they're in this no these are like pulled apart yes yes, and strapped down um saws surgical blades pulleys clamps various sex toys so these are the accessories that he would use while he and his accomplices were essentially uh were raping the victim and torturing them and then he would record his torture and murder so if you look in the trailer 
um, at some of the FBI footage, you'll see like VHS tapes, right? He would record all of them. And then he had recordings of stuff he would say, which I'll talk about. So the recordings were the trophies? The recordings were the trophies. Okay. Um, he did also have some jewelry and clothing. Okay. But I really think that his collection of these videos were really his trophies that he would keep. Um, so we're going to get way more into that in the second episode. But before we end today, what I want to do is just introduce what I believe the diagnostic impression is for him, which might help, you know, if we keep that in our mind while we're listening to the next episode. So what I would say is I think it's quite arguable to state that there were both pervasive developmental delays and trauma as a child. Um, and that without any therapeutic intervention, this would lead to more of those static personality characteristics, whether it's the narcissism or the sociopathy. Um, it's likely that his interpersonal deficits in conjunction with bullying and teasing led to antisocial behaviors such as his sexual sadism and psychopathy. Um, Ray learned how to manipulate his surroundings through intimidation as far back as 13 years old when he began to build bombs and feel powerful and unique for his mechanical abilities. He also disclosed to his ex-wife that um, this was about the time his sexual fantasies in, uh, involving violence led to the torture and homicide of a young girl. I think it's safe to say that he met the criteria for conduct disorder, an unspecified onset, only because we don't have enough information to know whether this behavior started before the age of 10. Mm. So fast forward then to his adulthood, um, what is a paraphilic disorder? So a paraphilic paraphilias are um, disorders that cause distress or cause problems functioning in the person with the paraphilia or that harm or may harm another person. So sadism is focused on the suffering of the other with, um, with, with or without humiliation or physical pain on the self. So if it's just strictly sadism, then sadomasochism would mean that the, the, the pain is on the self, but sadism is towards the other. So Ray's early environment in conjunction with his sexual development around depictions of violence, which caused arousal is likely, um, it is likely that he developed a clear trajectory to the sexual sadism. Um, I would also add obviously antisocial personality disorders is a disregard for, for in violation of the rights of others. And I would imagine, um, I have never done the PCLR on him, but I would imagine that he fits, um, he's probably pretty high on the psychopathy checklist. So, you know, what's really strange is he doesn't have a stable criminal record or history of violence as a child. Um, but I think there's also a lot that we don't know about him. So that's, that's where I think we probably should stop for now, but just to get some feedback from you, Shannon, what are your thoughts? No, I was curious what, uh, well, first of all, I was, I, agree with so far with your diagnosis. Yeah. I and mean, that sounds, it sounds like the sexual sadism was the way he was enacting his antisocial yeah. personality. You know, yeah. I find that they, the people that we talk about uh, that are the most famous serial killers, that we can diagnose them with antisocial personality and narcissism and all sorts of different things. And then there's this quality, there are different qualities to them, mm -hmm. right? So some of them are enacting uh, depression and anxiety. Yeah. You know, they're coming from a very depressive state and trying to gain power because it, it, it relieves their depression. Right. Some, some, are, and then some, and then in this case, I would say it's his sexual sadism that he's using as 
using as the backbone of how he's uh, executing his antisocial mm-hmm. personality mm-hmm. disorder. Yep. Like they're, that's how they're coupled. And obviously not everyone we look at is coupled in that way. They might all have antisocial personality disorder. In fact, they often yeah. <laughs> do. Yeah. They, I mean, that's a gimme yeah. for most of them. And then, and then there's the secondary component. It's yeah. like Dahmer was very depressed. Sure. And very anxious. Oh, yeah. You know? Yep. And Manson was very deluded and, you know, so it's just different ways. This is a sick, sick guy. And yeah. when, we, when we get to... Um, I was going to ask you, so the second part, what could yeah, so look the, forward so to? Yeah, so the second part we're going <laughs> to, we're going to get into mm-hmm. uh, more specifically just breakdown of his crimes and some of the more, uh, some of his victims, uh, more specifically some who have spoken up about, you know, because not all of them died. Right. Um, then we're going to get into just some of the sample tapes that he would use um, before he tortured them. Okay. I'm going to talk about his arrest, uh, his trial and death. Okay. Yeah. Thank you so much for that, Kathy. You're welcome. We will see you next time. In fact, next week. Next week we will have part two. Yes, we will. We look forward to that. Thank you so much for listening. This has been an episode of Terror Talk. My name is Shannon. And I'm Kathy. Sleep safe, everyone. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Terror Talk. Please check out our Patreon page, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We'd love to engage with you as part of our community. Please take a moment to leave us a comment on any of our social media. Thank you so much for listening. And once again, sleep safe.